Well, this morning we are in Daniel chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, please open up to the book of Daniel chapter 9. Now, by the way, um, we we will not be covering everything on that handout uh, this morning. There are some things on that handout that are not in Daniel chapter 9. That's mainly um, why. Um, But what that handout will show you is where Daniel chapter 9 fits in uh, to the chronology of end times events uh, that we read about uh, throughout uh, the pages of Scripture. Uh, And so um, if you're familiar with these things, then the information on that handout will uh, no doubt look somewhat familiar to you. If you're not familiar with these things, and this is all new to you, uh, then you'll be looking at it thinking, what on earth is all of that? Um, and it, it's a timeline, is what it is. It, it's a timeline. And uh, by the time we're done uh, this morning, um, we shall uh, hopefully have given uh, a basic understanding of what that handout is uh, communicating. Um, and Daniel chapter 9, as we shall see, is a crucial key to understanding uh, the chronology of end times events leading up to and including the second coming of Jesus Christ so more on that as we go uh, through but uh, here in Daniel chapter 9 we're in the second section of the book of Daniel Uh, the second section uh, from chapters 7 through 12 deals primarily with prophecy Uh, the first six chapters of the book of Daniel recall uh, dealt primarily with history uh, the life of Daniel Uh, in Babylon and subsequently the Medo-Persian Empire. The second six chapters of the book of Daniel uh, deal with prophecy as Daniel has visions uh, and uh, angels come and they interpret the visions as God is communicating future events to Daniel uh, through uh, the means of a vision and an angel who interprets those visions. Uh, And Daniel chapter 9 contains what is one of the most important uh, prophecies in all of the Bible uh, when it comes to understanding uh, end times events and the things surrounding the second coming of Christ. Uh, Daniel chapter 9 foretells the exact time that the Messiah would appear on this earth Um, But in addition to that, Daniel chapter 9 foretells uh, the events surrounding Messiah's return to this earth. And so we have both the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ in view in this prophecy here in Daniel chapter 9. The first coming of Christ obviously happened some 2,000 years ago, and so that portion of the prophecy has already been fulfilled. It was yet future to Daniel, right in some 500 years before Christ, uh, but to us, we look back on that portion of the prophecy that has already been fulfilled, but the portion of the prophecy that deals with the second coming of Christ is yet future to us. And so it is really fascinating and interesting as God has communicated to us what is going to happen at a time that is yet future to us, 
uh, that will immediately precede the second coming uh, of Jesus, which is to come. Now, the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 is recorded in the final few verses of the chapter, verses 24 through 27. So only four of the 27 verses of Daniel chapter 9 contain the details of this prophecy. But there are 23 verses before uh, we get to the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And those 23 verses are very uh, important and they provide important context for uh, the prophecy that is given in those final four verses. Because what the first 23 verses, the first section of Daniel chapter 9, record is the prayer of Daniel. Daniel's prayer to the Lord is recorded in Daniel chapter 9 verses 1 through verse 19. The second section of the chapter records Daniel's prophecy from the Lord. And so Daniel prays to the Lord and subsequently receives a prophecy from the Lord. Uh, And so we're going to take some time to look at this first section, dealing with Daniel's prayer to the Lord. Uh, And it's a very important section, not only in the context, but also in terms of what we learn uh, about Daniel himself. And so, before we get into that, let's just pray and we'll ask God's blessing upon our time together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks this day. Lord, another day uh, that you have made, that you have given us, Lord, that we can uh, worship you, that we can serve you, that we can fellowship with one another, that we can study your word. We ask your blessing upon this time now as we have your word open before us, uh, even as This prophecy commands that we know, therefore, and understand. Father, we recognize that apart from your Holy Spirit that we cannot know and we cannot understand. Uh, But we thank you, Lord, that you've given us your spirit uh, to lead us into all truth. Uh, So we ask that by your spirit uh, that you would open our hearts and that you would give us uh, those spiritual eyes that we need to see, those spiritual ears that we need to hear. Lord, what you're spirit will say to us through your word today and so bless this time we pray Uh, bless your word to our hearts we ask in jesus name amen now i suppose one thing that we've learned about daniel in the previous eight chapters is that daniel was a faithful man of god he was a faithful man of god um back in chapter one daniel was just a teenager when he was taken captive uh, from his home in Jerusalem and taken all the way by a foreign king to a foreign country uh, in, uh, to captivity in Babylon. Uh, and here we are in Daniel chapter 9, and this is some 70 years later. Uh, and so we have seen a span of time pretty much of the whole of Daniel's life, from being a teenager now to being a man in his 80s. Uh, And all the way through his life, uh, the the book of Daniel uh, testifies to the faithfulness of Daniel uh, in his service unto the Lord. And that's something that's worth noting. 
Because one thing that we've also seen throughout these chapters is that Daniel did not have an easy life. Daniel did not have it easy. Right from the beginning when he was taken captive, he was given a new language, a new culture. Uh, He was ordered to worship pagan gods. And right there, you'll remember in chapter 1, Daniel purposed in his heart that he wouldn't compromise on the things of the Lord. That he purposed in his heart that he would serve the Lord and that he would honor the Lord in all that he did. Uh, And he carried that through uh, all the way through his life. In spite of the pressure that came upon him uh, to forsake his God and worship pagan gods, despite, in spite of the death threats uh, that were given to him, such as when he ended up in the lion's den, Daniel didn't have it easy. He didn't have an easy life. He had a hard life in many ways, yet he remained faithful to his God. And that tells us something important, of course. It tells us that it is quite possible to live a life of faithfulness to the Lord, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And you think, well, you know, that, that, but that was Daniel. You know, Daniel was kind of one of those, you know, superheroes of the Bible that just had this kind of super ability to be super spiritual and do amazing things for the Lord. You know, I mean, you know, he's one of the, the, the supermen. You know, but, but I'm not like that. You know, I'm just, I'm just sort of like ordinary and normal. And I, I don't think I could manage to do things the way Daniel uh, did. Oftentimes we can think that. And, and of course, that is not true. Daniel was just a normal, uh, normal man, just like, uh, just like you and I. Um, but he did have a secret. But it wasn't a secret that was exclusive to him. It's actually a, a secret that we all share here this morning. Uh, Daniel was faithful to his God because Daniel was a man of prayer. And I think the correlation between those two things is very important. Uh, Back in Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel uh, was in need of an interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, otherwise he was going to be put to death, what did he do? He prayed. He went to the Lord in prayer. Uh, In Daniel chapter 6, you'll recall, um, when he was threatened not to pray to any other god except um, uh, except the the Babylonian or the Medo-Persian king Darius. Um, He refused to do that and we're told there that it was his custom to pray three times a day Uh, and so Daniel during his time in Babylon he was a man of prayer Uh, we see in Daniel chapter 9 here we see a a long prayer of Daniel Uh, chapter 10 also um, deals with prayer as does chapter 12 Uh, and so prayer was very much Daniel's secret weapon if you will in the life that he lived in faithfulness uh, before the Lord. Uh, and so if you want to serve the Lord, if you want to uh, honor the Lord in all that you do, if you want to be faithful to the Lord throughout the entirety of your life, take this lesson from Daniel. Be a man of prayer. Be a woman of prayer. Be consistent uh, in your prayer life. Someone once said that a a prayerless person is a disaster waiting to happen. 
a very serious and sobering thought. Daniel was a man of prayer. May we be men and women of prayer likewise. And so, we said that chapter 9 divides into two sections. Daniel's prayer to the Lord, uh, and then Daniel's prophecy from the Lord. Uh, And those two sections are linked, of course, because uh, it was in response to Daniel's prayer to the Lord that he received the prophecy from the Lord. So the prophecy was the answer to the prayer. And so we'll talk more about that uh, in a little bit. Uh, But the two sections are connected in that manner. And so uh, beginning in verse 1 then, let's uh, take a look at this prayer. Notice firstly uh, the time of the prayer in verses 1 and 2. It was in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. (coughs) Two important things to note uh, in those first two verses. Uh, Firstly, the time. The time is the first year uh, of Darius. And so that places this around 539-538 BC. You remember we've met Darius before, back in Daniel chapter 5 and Daniel chapter 6. Daniel uh, was one of the prominent governors in Darius's administration. And so this uh, places the opening of Daniel chapter 9, the time of this prayer and the receipt of this prophecy after the fall of the Babylonian Empire. You'll remember the Babylonian Empire fell to the Medes and the Persians in 539 BC, and that was recorded at the end of Daniel chapter 5. You'll remember Belshazzar, the handwriting on the wall. Um, And so, uh, important point, this prayer is made by Daniel uh, just after the fall of the Babylonian Empire. Now, why is that significant? Well, because in verse 2, we are told that after the fall of the Babylonian Empire, Daniel turned to the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Now, why would Daniel, following the fall of the Babylonian Empire, turn to the book of the prophet Jeremiah? Now, by the way, this is the same prophet Jeremiah uh, whose prophecy we have in our Old Testament. You know, sort of Isaiah, Jeremiah... Uh, the prophets in the Old Testament, well, it's the same Jeremiah. Uh, And so Daniel here is reading from the prophet Jeremiah, whose prophecy we have recorded in our Bibles. So that gives us uh, some uh, help in understanding what he was reading, because we can go to the book of Jeremiah ourselves and have a look, which we will uh, do in just a a second. Uh, But you'll recall Uh, just by way of background, that in 605 BC, in the opening of the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And he took Daniel away uh, captive, along with uh, many others. Uh, And he he later came back a few years later, and and a third time where he completed the destruction of Jerusalem Temple in 586. Uh, But in 605 uh, BC, that captivity... Uh, began. 
Now the year is 539 BC. So I'm no mathematician, but I can add that up a little bit, and it's about, what, um, 66 years or so, uh, from 605 to uh, 539. And Daniel then is reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel, although he was uh, no doubt older than Daniel. And Jeremiah started prophesying before the captivity happened, so prior to 605 uh, BC. He continued prophesying until uh, the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. Uh, But Jeremiah not only prophesied before the captivity, Jeremiah prophesied about the captivity. Uh, And that is precisely what Daniel was reading, according to Daniel Uh, chapter 9 and verse 2. He was reading the prophecy of Daniel concerning the Babylonian captivity. Now, what did Jeremiah prophesy concerning the captivity in Babylon? Well, two passages, Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. I'll read them to you. Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. This is the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. Daniel, Jeremiah 25, verse 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. In other words, Babylon will conquer Israel, and will, Israel will serve, or Judah, southern kingdom of Judah, I should say, will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So the captivity in Babylon was to be a 70-year captivity, according to the prophet Jeremiah. Then in verse 12 he goes on, Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So the captivity would last 70 years, but toward the end of the captivity, the Babylonian empire would fall. And that would bring about the end of the captivity. So you can see what Daniel is doing here. Hang on a second. The Babylonian empire has fallen. And the prophet Jeremiah said that when Babylon falls, the captivity is about to come to an end. That's what he's reading. Uh, Now, in Jeremiah 29, and this is a very well-known passage, uh, verses 10 through 14, uh, we have a further reference to the Babylonian captivity. For thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 29, verse 10, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. Now, thinking, these are no doubt the words that Daniel was reading. And he's thinking, hang on a second. Okay, so the captivity is going to be 70 years. Well, we're just about 70 years is up. Uh, the, about that time, Babylon is going to fall. Well, hang on a second. Babylon has just fallen. Uh, and the Lord has, has promised good uh, and, and has given the nation hope and has got promise of restoration. Uh, and I'm reading here that when we call upon him, he will answer us. So what does Daniel do? Well, in Daniel chapter 9, he calls upon the Lord in response to the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. And verse 13 of Jeremiah 29, it goes on and says, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. 
and I will be found by you. Now here's Daniel who's lived his whole life in captivity pretty much. And here is the promise of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah that the people, that his people, the Jewish people, will return to the land and will be restored to the land and will be restored to blessing. Now what sort of hope uh, this must have given uh, Daniel as he was reading these words. Uh, And it says, verse 14, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from the nations and bring... Uh, and and from all of the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring to you, um, I will bring you to the place which uh, from which I cause you to be carried away captive. And so they return uh, to, to the land. And so so this was all prophesied before the captivity ever took place. Uh, and Daniel now, uh, having spent nearly seventy years in Babylon, is reading these words, uh, and his response to reading the word of the Lord is to go to prayer to the Lord. And so we said that Daniel was a man of prayer, but verse 2 tells us he was also a man of the word. He read the word of the Lord. And because he read the word of the Lord, he gained understanding, and he gained direction, and he gained instruction, and he responded to the word of the Lord by doing what the word of the Lord told him to do. And that was to pray. To pray and to confess and to repent. And so here, beginning in verse 3, that's precisely what Daniel does. And so we have these things. I just want to em- emphasize this. We said if you, if you want to be faithful like Daniel, you want to serve the Lord, none of the Lord all the days of your life, be a man of prayer, be a woman of prayer, but be a man of the word. Be a woman of the word. Read the word. Know the word. Obey the word. The man of prayer, man of the word. Daniel was both of those things. And so verses 3 through 19, then we get the content of the prayer. And we'll go through this pretty quickly, but there's uh, four things uh, to point out about Daniel's prayer to the Lord. (coughs) Take a look at verse 3. Uh, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. So just notice very quickly, firstly, and this may be a bit of an obvious point, but when Daniel prays, he prays to the Lord. He doesn't pray to angels. He doesn't pray to saints. He doesn't pray to anybody else. He prays to the Lord. And when we pray, we pray to the Lord. And we come to the Lord through Jesus Christ. And so praying to angels and praying to Mary or praying to the saints or what have you won't get you anywhere. In fact, actually, there's some serious problems with that. Um, We pray to the Lord uh, through Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus. And so his prayer here is clearly, uh, verse 3, he set his face toward the Lord God. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God. It's another point. The Lord was his God. He wasn't just some 
strange God or some foreign God or some distant God or some God he was completely disconnected from. He was just out there and up there and he was just hitting and hoping with his prayers. No, Daniel was praying to the Lord, his God, a personal God, a God who knew Daniel and a God whom Daniel knew because he had revealed himself. And so our God is not a God who's just a distant God who's out there, uh, uninterested in the things that are going on. One thing we see very clearly uh, in Daniel chapter 9 is that God is very interested in the things that are going on in this world. In fact, God is orchestrating all the things that are going on in this world to accomplish his plan and purpose. And so Daniel's prayer, firstly, it was a prayer to the Lord. Secondly, notice uh, in verse 3, the humility of his prayer. Daniel expressed true humility here, verse 3, because it said he made his request, uh, his prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and acids were sort of um, garments symbolic um, of mourning and repentance and sorrow. Uh, and so Daniel here is recognizing um, uh, his sin and the sin of his people before a holy God. And he's mourning over the sin and he's mourning over the rebellion and he's mourning over the rejection uh, of God. And so there's an expression of true humility. True humility is simply recognizing who we are in light of who God is. And as long as we remember who we are in light of who God is, then we will remain in the place we ought to be, in the place of humility. And and so that was the case with Daniel. And so his prayer, it was to the Lord. Uh, His prayer expressed true humility. But notice, uh, thirdly, in his prayer, he confessed his sin and the sin of his people. Notice verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity, We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off, in all the countries to which Uh, You have driven them because of the unfaithfulness with which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belong shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Now, that's some serious confession going on right there. Now, Daniel is acknowledging the reason for the captivity. And the reason for the captivity was the captivity was God's judgment upon the southern kingdom of Judah for their rejection and rebellion 
against him. Uh, And that's made very clear as Daniel is confessing all of those things before uh, the Lord. Verse 4, he says, I make make confession. Verse 5, we have sinned and committed iniquity. Verse 8, we have sinned against you. Verse 9, we have rebelled against him. Verse 10, we have not obeyed. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed. See, Daniel was very clear in confessing his sin and the sin of his people. Now, confession of sin is not the most exciting part of the Christian life. We don't normally get excited over confessing sin, over the thought of confessing sin. In fact, What we tend to do is we tend to avoid it like the plague. We don't want to confess our sin. We don't want to acknowledge our sin. And the reason, of course, for that ultimately is pride. Because to confess sin means to admit that I'm wrong. And, of course, I'm not wrong. Of course, I'm always right. But there is also a spiritual side to that. Because sin at its heart is really a spiritual thing against God. And sin separates us from God. And we have an enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion. And and he knows that if he can get us to sin and he can uh, convince us not to confess our sin, then we're going to be ineffective in living our lives for the Lord. Confession of sin is one of the great sort of weapons that we have in our arsenal against the enemy. And confession of sin is the biggest blessing that we have, really, in the Christian life. Because we're sinners. And as sinners, we abide under God's judgment. But yet there is forgiveness because the Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, and the word confess, by the way, simply means to agree, to agree with God. God says this is sin. Yes, God, I agree with you. I am a sinner. You have said I'm a sinner. I agree. I am a sinner. You said this is sin. I did that. I have sinned. I'm wrong, God. You're right. That can be so hard for us to do at times, but it's so, so necessary. And the wonderful thing is it's so, so possible because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. If we confess uh, our sins, the Bible says that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so confession in the Christian life, confession of sin is so often the gateway to blessing. And yet we can hold on to our sin for so long and we won't let it go and we won't admit and we won't confess and then we end up being miserable and and we don't accomplish anything for the Lord and it's difficult and, and you think, why, why, why? But then when we realize that, you know, all I need to do is confess and receive that forgiveness. And when that forgiveness comes, That weight of sin is lifted. And there is freedom. You know, Jesus says the truth will set you free, right? 
the truth is I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And as soon as I acknowledge that, as soon as I acknowledge that my sin, that there is freedom, freedom to love the Lord, freedom to serve the Lord with my whole heart, freedom to serve the Lord with my life. So here Daniel, he's confessing uh, his sin, the sin of the people for their rejection, their rebellion uh, against him. Uh, Notice down in verse 12, then move on. Lots more we could say about that, but we don't have time. Verse 12, the next thing he does then is he acknowledges the consequences for sin. And this also is important. Verse 12, and he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us great disaster. This is speaking of uh, God's judgment uh, upon them for their sin and their rebellion and their rejection of him. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Now, just stop there. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. God made promises of blessings for obedience to Israel and curses for disobedience. If you, if, you, uh, if you obey my word, if you love me, if you serve me, then there will be blessings. But if you don't obey my word and you disobey and you reject me, then, then there will be consequences. And what Daniel is doing here is he is acknowledging and accepting that the captivity in Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem was the nation of Judah getting what they deserved. God wasn't unjust in bringing about the captivity. God wasn't unjust in meeting out his judgment. God was perfectly just. He was absolutely just. It was the people who had rejected and rebelled against him. And what the people got, the people deserved on account of their sin. And so Daniel here, he's he's acknowledging that there are consequences to sin. And he's accepting those consequences. But of course, while it's true there are consequences to sin, there is also forgiveness for sin. While I may have gone through a period of disobedience and rebellion, I can confess and repent and enter into a new period of, uh, of obedience and blessing. Uh, and that is, that is, of course, the hope of the gospel, is it not? That's a hope for all of us here uh, this morning, you can spend years and years and years in rejection and rebellion against God, but if you confess your sin and you acknowledge Jesus as Lord, you can receive forgiveness and enter into a time of blessing, spiritual blessing in the Christian life. And so, Daniel here, he acknowledges that, that God is just and that he is righteous uh, in his uh, judgments. But he goes on, verse 13, Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord God has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name uh, as it is this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. (coughs) And so, acknowledge the sin, accept the consequences of the sin. Because God is righteous and just and holy. And then verse uh, 16, verse through, through verse 19, the final thing he does, 
is he acknowledges that ultimately all of this and, and, and all of life is ultimately all not about Daniel and not even about Israel, but it's all about the Lord. Because notice what he says, verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Notice, your people, your city, your righteousness. You know, Lord, it's, it's all yours. Our part in this has been to sin and to reject and to rebel. But this, this, is, this, is, all, this is all about you, Lord. This, is all, this all belongs to you. Um, verse 17, Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications for the Lord's sake, your fa- cause your face to shine uh, on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city, uh, your eyes, uh, and see our... Uh, sorry. Uh, Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. So this is quite amazing, quite wonderful. Uh, Notice a couple of things that, As I said, it's all about the Lord. Firstly, it's about the Lord's righteousness and mercy. You notice verse 16, it's it's your righteousness, Lord. Uh, Verse 18, your great mercies, Lord. The, the, The basis of Daniel's pleading in his prayer is God's righteousness and God's mercy. Uh, And that's important. Daniel isn't pleading with the Lord. Lord, answer my prayer because I am so righteous. Lord, look how many good things I've done this week. Therefore, answer my prayer, Lord. Look how good I've been. Uh, Look how many good things that I've done. Lord, answer my prayer. No. He says, I'm not righteous. God is the one who is righteous. And so the basis of his prayer, just like the basis for our prayers, is not our own righteousness, for we have none. But the basis for our prayers is God's righteousness. And it is God's mercy. Uh, and, and that is a wonderful thing for so many reasons, because it means not least the fact that um, we can all come to the Lord in prayer. If prayer was dependent upon my righteousness, I'd be in trouble. And if prayer was dependent upon your righteousness, you'd be in trouble too, because we have no righteousness before God on account of our sin. But when we realize that prayer is not dependent upon us, but it's dependent upon him, all of a sudden, everything's on the table. It means we can pray. It means we can come to the Father through Jesus, the Son. And so it's about the Lord, but it, it's not just about the Lord's righteousness and mercy. It's, all about, it's also about the Lord's will and purpose. All of this is ultimately about the Lord's will and purpose. Notice in verse 17, he says that, Lord, this is... This is this prayer, Lord, do all this for the Lord's sake, for, for your own sake, do this. Don't do it for my sake. Don't even do it for Israel's sake. Lord, do it for your sake. Do it for your glory. Uh, and Daniel basically acknowledges here that prayer 
really is, is about the Lord and about his will and his purpose. It's not about me, my will and my purpose. It's about the Lord, his will and his purpose. We don't tell God what to do. God tells us what to do. We don't say, God, you need to do that. We say, God, what do you want me to do? God is the one who is in charge. He is Lord. Uh, and the things that are happening in Daniel chapter 9 for the nation of Israel and for Daniel and the things that are happening today in the world and the things that are happening in your life, ultimately, your life does not belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. And that's something that's really important but really hard to get our heads around. Time and again here, Daniel says, uh, Lord, Israel is your people. Your people. Right? They don't even belong to themselves. They're your people. They belong to you. Uh, and in the New Testament, Paul uh, tells us that we are not our own because we've been bought with a price, the price of the precious blood of Jesus. So we do not belong to ourselves. If you're a, a, a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you do not belong to yourself. You have no right to do what you want to do because you belong to the Lord. He has purchased you and our lives are to be lived according to his will and purpose, not my will and purpose. Uh, and, and the Christian life, by and large, is about learning what that means uh, and living it out practically in our lives. And so life is not about me. That's a really hard lesson to learn. Because particularly in the world today, I mean, this, this is the, the, the spirit of this age. It's all about me, the world. It's all about me. I mean, I, 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 can, I, can, even, I, I can even sort of redetermine nature and biology because it's all about me. But it isn't all about me. It's all about the Lord. And so, anyhow, so we get in then, notice verse 20 then. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. And just, just notice by there, confessing my sin and the sin of my people. It would have been very easy to say, actually, actually you know what? I've been a pretty holy guy for the last 70 years. You know, it's all, it's all those, it's all those uh, people who are out there in the fields in captivity. It's, it's their fault, not mine, that we ended up in captivity. But while Daniel was a faithful man, faithful to the Lord, and he served the Lord wholeheartedly, he wasn't without sin. And he acknowledged that. He confessed his sin as well as the sin of the nation. Anyway, verse 21. Yes, when I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fight swiftly, this is the angel Gabriel, <coughs> reached uh, me about the time of the evening offering and informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have come forth now to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now, here we see now that God responds to Daniel's prayer. This, the, the verses that are about to follow are essentially an answer to Daniel's uh, prayer. And 
The answer came straight away. In fact, it says, while I was speaking. He hadn't even finished praying, and the answer came. Now, those are the kinds of answers to prayer that we like. Right? We haven't even finished praying, and the Lord answers our prayers. I mean, I, you know, that, that, that I can do. That's great. Wonderful. Lovely. Uh, in chapter 10, uh, we'll find that, that actually it took, took three weeks for the Lord to answer Daniel's prayer. So the answer didn't come straight away. It took three weeks. You might think three weeks isn't too bad. Um, but, but it's interesting. Here in Daniel chapter 9, an answer comes immediately before he even finishes praying. Then in chapter 10, it takes three weeks for the Lord to answer. And you think, well, why? Why the difference? Why the difference? Well, one thing that they both have in common, which is interesting, notice the end of verse 23. Gabriel said, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. In other words, Daniel, the moment you started praying, the Lord heard your prayer. And the moment you started praying, the Lord started working. And the same was true, actually, in Daniel chapter 10, even though it took three weeks for the answer to come. And so, does God hear our prayers? Yes. Does God answer our prayers? Yes. Just sometimes he says yes, and sometimes he says no, and we don't like that one. And sometimes he says a little bit later. And we don't really like that one either. But why don't I receive answers to my prayers right away? I mean, we all want answers to our prayers right away, of course, right? Uh, Well, maybe for a few reasons. One, you won't receive an answer to your prayer right away. In fact, you won't receive an answer to your prayer at all if your prayer is outside of the will of God. Uh, James says that one reason that, that you don't get what you ask is because you ask amiss. You ask for the wrong thing. You ask outside the will of God, and so you don't receive an answer. Or you do receive an answer, it's just the answer is no. Um, Another reason is because of the spiritual battle that takes place, and that's the lesson of Daniel chapter 10, that there's a spiritual battle. Sometimes God will begin uh, an answer, send an angel to do something, and, and there's a spiritual battle, and that takes time. And it's a fascinating insight in Daniel chapter 10. A third reason why God doesn't answer prayer straight away is maybe he's got some patience to work in you. God is doing a work. He has greater purposes to accomplish in you than the answer to your prayer. But either way, God hears our prayers, know that, and God answers prayer, know that. Uh, But when we do pray, one thing that we always know when we commit things to the Lord in prayer is that we know that whatever the answer, whether it comes now, whether it comes later, what we do know when we pray is that we know that we are in God's will. Because if we've prayed it through and it hasn't happened yet, we know it's not because we haven't prayed. And one reason, in fact, we don't receive answered prayer is because we don't ask, James said, because we don't ask. You have not because you ask not. And so if you ever think, why isn't the Lord answer my prayer? And then you think, actually, I didn't actually ever pray about that. Well, that's, that could be a reason why. But when we pray and we don't receive the answer right away, we know that the reason the answer hasn't come is, is not because we haven't prayed. And so we know it's because the Lord has a plan. And that gives us great peace and comfort and rest. And so we come to the vision. Now I'm going to outline this. 
relatively quickly, there's a lot of detail, and I'm going to summarize it, and that's partly the reason why I've given you a, a, a handout, so you can follow along. But this that follows, 24 through 27, is what is commonly referred to as the 70 weeks prophecy. And you say, well, why is it referred to as the 70 weeks prophecy? Well, because in verse 24, it says, 70 weeks are determined. And so, now I do have to say, is that there are good Bible scholars who disagree over some of the details here. Uh, And there are some different views when it comes to end times events. Now, coming to Calvary Chapel, you know you're going to get the right view. And so... (laughs) I actually do believe that, by the way. Um, uh, but I, I, I do have friends, godly people, who love the Lord, and I don't question their love or commitment to the Lord and, and to the gospel or whatever, who will disagree. Um, doesn't mean they're not saved or anything like that. Doesn't mean they don't love the Lord. Doesn't mean they're not used by the Lord or anything like that. Um, there's some great godly people who disagree. Uh, and, and, and that's one of those things, and, and that, that's okay. That's okay. They're perfectly entitled to be wrong, I won't hold it against them. Okay. And, and I kind of make, make light of that. But I'm, it's kind of a, ser- a serious point. There are some areas of legitimate disagreement. And, and, and you know, um, we, we have to sort of be very sort of respectful when it comes to, come to that. And so anyhow. So, so notice first, you know, just quickly, what, what, what the prophecy concerns. What's it, what's it about? Well, um, we'll go through this line by line. Seventy weeks are determined. So the prophecy, firstly, it concerns an amount of time. And the amount of time is seventy Weeks. Now, the, the word week, uh, the Hebrew word, uh, means literally a period of seven. So um, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, seven days. It could be seven hours, seven days, seven months, seven years. Now, most scholars uh, have always agreed that the period of seven that's spoken about in this prophecy is a period of 70 years. And so one week is a period of seven, a period of seven years. So there are 70 periods of seven years that constitute the sum total of this prophecy. So 70 times seven is 490. So 490 years are determined. Uh, That's the second thing, determined. Determined by who? Determined by God. Okay? So the prophecy concerns an amount of time. Secondly, the prophecy concerns God's ordained purpose. Okay, 490 years are determined. God has determined it. He has ordained it. It will happen. These 490 years and everything contained within it will come to pass. Okay, the third thing to note is this prophecy concerns the Jewish people and Jerusalem. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Who's the angel talking to? Well, he's talking to Daniel. Uh, Daniel... This prophecy concerns your people. Well, who are Daniel's people? Well, the, the Jewish people. And, and, and your holy city. Well, what city was that? Well, that's Jerusalem. <coughs> and so the prophecy concerns an amount of time, 490 years. It concerns God-ordained purpose. He has determined it. The prophecy concerns specifically the Jewish people in Jerusalem, Daniel's people, and his holy city. Uh, and then fourthly here in verse 24, the prophecy reveals God's ordained purpose. Because according to the rest of verse 24, these 490 years are determined 
to accomplish six things. Six things that God has determined to accomplish concerning Israel and Jerusalem that he will accomplish within this time period of 490 years. Now the first three deal with sin and the second three deal with the coming kingdom. Now as you look through, the first, uh, the first uh, thing God will accomplish uh, through uh, this 490 year period is to finish the transgression. To finish the transgression. Transgression is breaking uh, the law. It's breaking God's law. Here, the context, it's it's concerning Israel, and therefore it's concerning uh, Israel's breaking of God's law, or their rebellion and rejection of God. So, get this, okay? At the end of this 490-year period, Israel's rebellion and rejection of God will finish. That's the idea. Okay, to make an end of sins, that's the second one, to make an end of sins. And so transgression is, you know, breaking the law, uh, to make an end of sins. Well, uh, speaks of, of the re- sins of daily life that come about as a result of our sin nature. And the third, to make, a rec- to make reconciliation for iniquity. So how is sin going to be brought to an end? Well, because reconciliation is going to be made. And that speaks of redemption, it speaks of atonement. Now, of course, when we think about transgressions and sin and atonement, we know that atonement was made for our sins uh, by Jesus Christ when he came into this world at his first coming and he died on the cross for our sins, taking upon himself our sins um, and paying the penalty for our sin, which is death uh, for us, for those who would put their faith and trust uh, in him, uh, believing that he is uh, Lord and God subsequently raised him uh, from the dead. So, so in one sense, these three things uh, were fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. Jesus, when he died on the cross, cried out, it is finished. The work of redemption has been finished. But in a second sense, um, these three things haven't been entirely fulfilled. Because as we look around the world, has, has sin come to an end? No. Okay, as, 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 Israel, as Israel's rejection and rebellion of, against God to come to an end? No. Uh, and so, so these things haven't yet been fulfilled. Um, the means by which they're going to be fulfilled, the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, has been accomplished. But the ultimate consummation of these things won't be accomplished until the second coming of Christ. Uh, and then also notice the second three things then. Um, this 490-year period will bring in everlasting righteousness. And so when these 490 years are completed, everlasting righteousness will come in. In other words, there'll be no rebellion, there'll be no sin, there'll be no rejection of God, there'll only be worship, there'll only be obedience. Again, context Israel. Uh, to seal up vision and prophecy, very interesting. To seal up means to, to make an end. Uh, In other words, all the prophecy in the Bible concerning Jerusalem and Israel will be fulfilled. And so this 490-year period, it will bring everything to fulfillment. And then finally, uh, and to anoint the most holy. Uh, And that refers, most scholars say, to not a person but to a place. Uh, And that's a reference 
in uh, what's known as the Millennial Kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, uh, and it's a reference to the most holy place, to the Millennial uh, Temple um, in Jerusalem, which will be the center of worship uh, of God. And so we could say, actually, it talks about establishing Jerusalem as the center of worship. And so, so verse 24 then tells us that God has a purpose for Israel that will be accomplished over a time period of 490 years. And at the end of that time, his will and purpose will be fulfilled. Sin will end. Israel's rejection and rebellion against God will end. And God's kingdom will be established on this earth. And so that's verse 24. Verse 25. So so when's all this going to happen? Right, verse 25. Know therefore and understand. Now from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now this is where you need to pull out your calculators because it's very specific, isn't it here? Uh, And so so we're told when this 490-year period concerning Israel will begin. Okay, it says... It will begin uh, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, remember here, Daniel is in Babylonian captivity. Uh, Jerusalem has been raised to the ground. There is no temple there at this point that Daniel is receiving this prophecy. Uh, And so the angel is saying a command is going to be given for God's people to go back to Jerusalem uh, and to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city walls. And when that command goes forth, that's when this 490-year period is going to begin. But then we also have another detail, and that is the coming of Messiah the Prince. And we are told that between the command to go forth and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah the Prince, there is a time period of seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, 7 plus 62, and I'm no genius, but that's 69 out of the 70. And so periods of seven years, okay, 69 sevens are 483. I didn't just work that off the top of my head. I learned that a long time ago, so you know. So 483 years. So we're told from the time the command goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem to the time Messiah will be present on this earth will be 483 years. Then Messiah will be here. After 483 years. <coughs> now, so, so when does this start? And this is where it gets interesting. Well, in the, in the Old Testament, there are actually four times uh, it is recorded that a command was given for the children of Israel to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, and so there are actually four different commands. Um, there was a command by Cyrus in 538 BC, shortly after this. There was another one from Darius in 519 BC. Read about in Ezra. A third one uh, in 458 uh, by Artaxerxes. Uh, and then a, a fourth one given to Nehemiah, beginning of the book of Nehemiah, 445 BC. Now, um, there's a lot that could be said about this, but suffice it to say, um, uh, when you count forward from 
the time that the command went forth. And you say, well, what time was that? Um, a lot of detail we could talk about, but we won't. Suffice it to say, only one of those commands involved the command to rebuild the walls. Uh, in fact, one of the commands, there was actually a command to stop rebuilding the walls because they tried uh, and they were commanded to stop. Um, but the command given to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, specifically was to go rebuild the walls. The other, all, the others re- um, all the other commands centered around rebuilding the temple. Only the command to Nehemiah was specifically to do with rebuilding the walls, as it's stated here in verse 25. And so, so most people take the command to Nehemiah 445 BC as the start date for this. And if you count forward, and, and there's been some, well, one of those famous calculations was done by a chap called Sir Robert Anderson, um, and that was over 100 years ago, uh, and that there's lots more study being done on it since then. Um, but one thing that he calculated was that going from um, uh, March the 14th, 445 BC, which is the time given in Nehemiah chapter 2, and you count forward the 483 years, he ended up on a date of April the 6th, uh, AD 32, which he equated to the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah on the day that we call the triumphal entry. Now, lots of study has been done on this, uh, but suffice it to say is this prophecy predicted uh, to the very day the time that Messiah would be present on this earth. And it's quite remarkable, and it was fulfilled completely in the first coming of Christ. Uh, And so, that's the first uh, 69 weeks. Now, verse 26 tells us what happens after those 69 weeks are fulfilled. Verse 26, after the 62 weeks which was the second period, seven weeks, and then after the 62 weeks, so total 69 weeks, after the 483 years, when Messiah has come, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So the first thing that will happen upon completion of that period of 483 years when Messiah comes is that Messiah will be cut off, Messiah will be killed. That's the prophecy. But he won't be killed for himself. Who will he be killed for? Well, he will die for us and so messiah will be killed but another thing will happen we're told after the 62 weeks or after the 483 years and that is the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined Uh, and so the other thing that will happen after the period of 69 weeks or 483 years, Messiah will be cut off, but also the temple and Jerusalem will again be destroyed. Now, this is interesting because the temple and Jerusalem was already destroyed when um, uh, Daniel was receiving this. And so clearly the temple would be rebuilt um, and will be destroyed again. So this might have been kind of good. Oh, temple's going to be rebuilt. We're going back. That's great. Daniel, oh, no, it's going to be destroyed again at some point in the future. Okay. Now, this happened in 70 AD, where the Roman armies um, uh, destroyed Jerusalem, conquered Jerusalem, and they they raised Jerusalem to the ground. And Jesus prophesied that uh, would happen uh, as well. Uh, And so, so all of that has been fulfilled. Messiah came, Messiah was cut off, Jerusalem the temple were destroyed. All of that has been fulfilled. Now, here's the thing. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks are determined and sin will come to an end and the kingdom of righteousness will be established. The question is, 
is after the death of Messiah and after the destruction of Jerusalem, um, that doesn't sound like an end to sin and the establishing of everlasting righteousness. In fact, as we look around the world today, um, sin has not come to an end and everlasting righteousness has not become. And so has God failed to accomplish his purpose? Well, the answer is no, because all of that was bound up in the first 69 weeks. But remember, there are 70 weeks determined, not just 69. So there is one more week or one more period of seven years that is yet to be fulfilled, at the end of which all of this will be fulfilled. An end will be made to sin and transgression. Reconciliation will be made fully and completely, and the kingdom of everlasting righteousness will come. And so... It becomes clear then that after the first period of 69 weeks that there, there, there is a gap at the death of Messiah and Israel's rejection of Messiah. But their rejection of the Messiah and even today, <coughs> the Jews uh, do not by and large, and of course there are some Messianic believers whose eyes have been opened to the truth, but by and large Israel on the whole is, still rejects Jesus as Messiah today, but one day uh, that will change, and that day is yet future. And so, verse 27 then details the final week, and this is yet future. So then, okay, after all of that, after all of that has been done, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And so here's the one week, the final week, the remaining week, the 70th week of Daniel. Now, The 70th week will begin with the confirmation of a covenant. And the covenant will be made by the prince who is to come. Verse 26. Now the prince who is to come is not Prince Messiah. The prince who is to come is Prince Anti-Messiah. Or to use the Greek term, Anti-Christ. So the Christ will come. But then, at some point in the future, a covenant or a treaty will be made for seven years by the coming anti-Messiah or anti-Christ. Referred to as the man of sin, the lawless one, the son of perdition in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Referred to the antichrist in 1 John. The little horn, you'll recall, in chapter 7 and chapter uh, eight. So this man will come onto the scene at some point in the future and he will bring a peace covenant uh, with Israel. Uh, and we know he will bring unity, political unity, economic sort of unity, even religious sort of unity. And you think, well, how will he do this? Well, according to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'd encourage you to read that chapter, we are told that this man will be empowered by Satan. And he will be empowered to do uh, a miraculous things. And so this chap will come and he will be able to do things that nobody has ever done before and the world will be enthralled to this man. He will make this covenant and it will be a seven-year covenant. Now, notice next. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And so seven years... 
begins with a peace treaty. Everyone thinks this guy's wonderful. But then, and the Jews think this guy's wonderful. But then halfway through, three and a half years in, he breaks the treaty. And what's interesting is it says that he brings an end to sacrifice and offering, which implies that there will be sacrifice and offering taking place in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing. Is there a temple in Jerusalem right now? No, there isn't. And so for this to be fulfilled, there needs to be a temple in Jerusalem. And it may well be that the temple in Jerusalem is built off the back of the treaty that the Antichrist makes. And you can see the stage in the world today, you know, gosh, bring in peace in the Middle East. I mean, who could do that? I mean, wow. Wouldn't that be the most amazing thing? Well, it will happen. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even till the consummation which is determined the end of all things is poured out on the desolate Uh, and so what will take place halfway through the tribulation is what um, Daniel says here is the abomination of the one who makes desolate the abomination of desolation as it's commonly referred to that Jesus referred to himself in Matthew chapter uh, 24 and this will take place. Now, what, what is the abomination of desolation? Well, First Thess- uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 uh, tells us that the Antichrist will enter into the temple of God and he will go into the Holy of Holies uh, and he will uh, present himself as God and demand to be worshipped as God. Uh, and so, so the abomination of desolation really is going to be the Antichrist essentially declaring that the whole world worships him as God, that they reject the true and the living God and worship him uh, as God. And that's what he will uh, do. And for three and a half years then, he will have power, absolute power on this earth. But it will only be for three and a half years because it will only take place until the consummation, which is determined. Remember, God has determined 70 weeks to accomplish his plan and purpose. And when the 70 weeks are up, God will accomplish his plan and purpose. And what will happen then at that final point, when the seven years are up? Well, transgression will be finished, sin will be made an end of, reconciliation will be made for iniquity, everlasting righteousness will come in, prophecy will be fulfilled, and the worship of the true and the living God will be restored on this earth. And that will all happen when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. And so we've read Daniel chapter 2 and the prophecy. You'll remember the Gentile kingdoms and then all of a sudden the stone that comes and smashes Gentile dominion and becomes a great mountain. Well, that's Christ coming and establishing his kingdom on earth. We saw the same thing with the beasts in Daniel chapter 7, the beasts that came out of the sea. Again, Gentile dominion uh, on the earth. Um, but then, uh, as well, uh, we're told... Uh, that uh, Messiah will come uh, and he will come and he will establish his kingdom. He will defeat uh, the Antichrist, the little horn there, and will establish his kingdom uh, on the earth. And you read about this in the book of Revelation chapter 19 when Christ comes. Uh, When Christ comes, there will be no battle. The Antichrist won't stand a chance. Uh, Ultimately, um, 
Jesus will do it all. He will defeat the Antichrist. He will defeat rebellion and rejection of him. Uh, and he will judge um, uh, the living uh, at that time. I read about that in Matthew 25. Uh, and then will establish his kingdom on earth, which for a thousand years will be and will ultimately give way to the new heavens and the new earth. And there's lots more to talk about that. That's why you have a handout. And so you can read that and come back. But here's the point. Jesus Christ is coming back. God has determined it. Sin will be done away with. God has determined it. Everlasting righteousness will come. God has determined it. Uh, and it will come in a time yet future to us. But until the Lord comes, the Lord commands us to be busy about his business in this world to be faithful to him, be men of prayer, women of prayer, men of the word, women of the word, and to faithfully serve him in the church and in the world um, as he accomplishes his plan and purposes through us while he is working all things together towards the ultimate end that he has already uh, determined. And so we made it just about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray you'll bless your word to our hearts. We pray that you would help us to know and understand these things, uh, Lord. And we just pray that... Uh, the hope that we have at the return of Christ, uh, Lord, will purify us, even as he himself is uh, pure. So we thank you for these things and ask that you would bless your word to our hearts as we give you praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let us all stand together.